What I hope to happen from our time together is that you will get to hear some of what we got to hear and experience over the last four days of this conference. <clears throat> it won't be the best of, it'll be sort of a sampler plate. <clears throat> and, and pretty much chosen for the diversity, the different ways in which the ideas of advocacy have been applied in different practices by people of different backgrounds, from people all across the country and even up in Canada. And just to be able to build on what in fact over four days we never quite fully defined, what is clinical advocacy? <clears throat> it is a term that we made up. To be clear, this is a field in the making. Uh, there are no rules. Uh, there's, no, there's some attempt to sort of have regulations and codes of ethics and an organization of sorts. But <clears throat> I can tell you that the story most people told at our opening night of sort of how they came to be here was very similar to my own, namely that you were on a journey in working with health and healing, uh, and, and you began to realize that <clears throat> patients weren't being listened to, family members uh, in particular were being completely ignored as to their help and input, and that <clears throat> there was always this feeling that there was an ever-decreasing standard of care that was sort of going to a lower and lower common denominator, less and less time with doctors and health professionals, and that somehow there had to be something better, something at least remedial for those people who really, really just hit the wall <clears throat> and aren't being served by the healthcare system. And then at some point you begin to say, ethically, I have trouble doing what I was doing just in the standard way. And then you sort of strike out on your own. And so most of us actually kind of arrived at this idea of doing something that loosely would be called clinical advocacy without realizing that anyone else had reached that breaking point. <clears throat> and so for me, it came somewhat perhaps before most everyone else who came to this meeting, and that was in 1988, when I um, thought, gosh, I think one could sort of professionally do this. And the idea from the beginning for me, and it was, it was <clears throat> to be there to really um, help patients and family do what it is that they want and hope for, and that it was... <clears throat> Yes, obviously, to try and find the best possible treatments, the best possible people to treat them. But in almost every case, people were very realistic as to whatever their circumstance was. And they pretty much knew what it is that they needed in the way of help. They just needed someone to go to bat for them, to help them accomplish that. And pretty much I've been doing that <clears throat> for 20 plus years now. Um, and it was always the question, gee, why don't you have a conference or a course to teach this? And I would always say, gosh, I'm still learning how to do this, even after 20-something years. But really in the last two years, there suddenly was a realization of hearing about other people who've sprung up and are doing this in Seattle or Denver or New York. And it, um, 
when Sandy Birdwell, who is who co-coordinated this conference with me, um, she's a radiation oncologist trained at Stanford, <coughs> who also kind of jumped ship and wanted to do advocacy work and has been studying with me for this year. And we were talking about a project we could do together and we said, well, why don't we organize the first ever conference? There's a, enough people out there now doing this work. Let's just try and get them all in a room together and see what happens. And so I have had a lot of experience with Commonweal and I thought Commonweal would be the perfect place for it. And all of you who know Commonweal would realize that this sort of crucible is, is central to this kind of work. So over the last four days, basically, <clears throat> it's been a Commonweal conference unlike others I've been to here. In that, <laughs> modest though people are when they come here, there was this, at the cattle <clears throat> guard, as you come out in the driveway, most, I mean, literally everyone in our group sort of checked their ego there. It wasn't really what your training background is or the academic position you hold. It was really the work. That was the key. And the remarkable phenomena of seeing people who are able to go really deep and to go really broad simultaneously. If I would pick the earmark of a clinical advocate, that would be it. And because we're not going to have time for you to hear from each of the people, I do want to just kind of mention some of what was offered that if you do have the chance during this afternoon to just corner those people that I think you'll find particularly interesting. <clears throat> so Joanne Smith, who is over in Oakland, is a social worker, independently, more or less, just like I did, sort of thought, oh, this is great to do. And, and, and she began to, to do this and then thought, wow, you know, maybe I'll put together a conference of people to do this. And, and it was somewhat different in terms of doing healthcare advocacy, uh, not per se clinical advocacy. And there's nuances of definition there. But Joanne has independently basically created a training program for a lot of people, some MDs, but you know, RN social workers. <clears throat> um, and there's, they formed an association. There's 200 members in, in the country. Um, Ellen Barnett, uh, a physician from over the hill, Santa Rosa area, <clears throat> uh, and Pam Follett, uh, uh, skip, um, not Pam Follett, but Pam, couple, sorry, had started a, uh, a training program at Sonoma State for patient navigators. Going, it's going for several years now. And remarkably, they're training mostly lay people to be, and their goal really being to have a patient navigator in every healthcare setting. So it's this part of the care that you receive. <coughs> um, Jim Gordon, who isn't here, who spoke of several years now of a course called Cancer Guides that trains people, medical oncologists or nurses, whomever, um, who really want to help guide patients going through the cancer world in all the possible treatments and options and alternative and integrative and mind-body and how to assemble that. Um, and there's several hundred of these cancer guides <coughs> around the country. Um, Angie Turiot, who uh, some of you may know, uh, 
was the person who, who had thought of and founded Plain Tree, which is this national, international organization that is very, very patient-centered. Um, so what I want to do is um, tell you that ultimately, you know, these, how these conferences go. You know, you come down to the crunch time, the end of the conference, and it's sort of like, well, what's going to happen after this? And so we met this morning to sort of try to do that. And I'm not sure if we succeeded or not, but there were a lot of wonderful ideas floated. <clears throat> and um, as advocates will be, you know, we, um, we deliberate, we sort of consider, we try to get opinions and ideas. And really, uh, to me, it was left to you <laughs> to hear from a sampling of these ideas. At the end of that will be, uh, Sandy will present sort of the distillation of what it was that came from this conference. And then I hope that there is some directive that you can give us. What, what would, in your minds, seem to be next steps to grow this work, make it more applicable? And on that, I will <coughs> turn the... Uh, podium over to Will Kennedy, who uh, comes from the hospice palliative care world from Ohio originally, who basically came out to San Francisco uh, a few years back to study with me um, and took this patient advocacy, clinical advocacy idea back into the world of hospice care. And I know that here we're talking about advocacy for living and life. In, by all intention. But uh, right away, I just want to sort of turn the table and have you see the role of advocacy in hospice care. So uh, thank you very much, Mark. And I just wanted to start to say that um, this is really a full circle experience for me. And the first thing I noticed uh, during our first night here was that really I was a product of so many of the people in the room and how amazing that was. I, when I was in college, I think I became aware of Plain Tree and Commonweal. And I remember when I graduated from college, somebody gave me a book, Healing, it was Healing in the Mind, the Bill Moyers book. And then I read Rachel Remen's book. And so this is kind of an amazing thing for me. Um, and over the last 10 years, when I graduated from my residency, I knew what I was interested in, but I didn't know where I needed to end up, if that makes sense, on a day-to-day -day basis. So I did uh, the Andrew Weil Fellowship at the University of Arizona in Integrative Medicine, and then I did a Palliative Medicine Fellowship. And um, I started doing palliative care, and I worked as an inpatient hospice doctor um, that received patients from a major cancer center in the United States. And this was a, a really shocking experience for me uh, to see what was happening in the cancer arena in a very acute care center, and then how they were ending up under my care. Um, and for a lack of a better description, it was very traumatic um, for all of us. And so that my, I suppose looking back, that's when it started that I was thinking about how can this be done differently, just all of the kind of questions. And one night, I think six or seven years ago, I was on Commonweal's website and I found Mark's Jennifer Altman lecture. And it was, it was late at night, and it was just one of those moments where, you know, you can't sleep for another two or three hours because you just know this entire door has opened up. 
So uh, I continued doing hospice and palliative care work where I was, and then uh, I did research for Mark for a couple of years, which was very helpful. Um, and then I came here for a year and studied with Mark and tried to learn more of, of his work. And for the last three and a half years, I've been in Portland, Oregon, doing hospice and what I would say is palliative care as well, but in a different way. So that's the idea. And so in coming here, um, I just want to say, even though the title is pa uh, Patient Advocacy and Hospice, as we've spoken, and certainly to this audience, I want to say, really what this is about, in my mind, is patient advocacy for, for patients that have serious illness. Okay, And there's a difference, because ho you know, hospice is a lot of things. Hospice is a, it's not a clinical definition, right? It's a definition defined by reimbursement, by government, those kind of things. Um, but as far as one's experience, it has nothing to do with hospice. Um, and so, anyway, I just want to point that out. This is really for what I'm going to talk about, what I feel is about people that have significant illness and what I've learned. So when I worked with Mark, I was always trying to distill, what is it about this work that is essential? And I think first, because it was so overwhelming, is that I tried to come up with a formula and try to codify it and those kind of things. And Mark always resisted me. And I think I had to go out into the world a bit and kind of figure it out for myself what he was trying to teach me. Um, and so some of the things that I'm going to talk about are just some of the lessons that I use now in a hospice and palliative care setting. Okay, does that, I hope that makes sense. So the first, the first one is start from the beginning, and that is, without going into what hospice care is like oftentimes, um, you might say that the story has already been written, in my opinion. And that is that when you get to a point where you're in a hospice or more of a palliative care setting is that the assumption is, is that what's happened up until that point has made sense, is true, um, that every stone has been unturned, all of those kind of things. And so I can tell you that there's incredible worth in pulling medical records. And I mean this only from the medical sense. I think talking about it from a whole person sense is really a different question. But is that there's incredible worth about digging through what's going on, not just recently, um, I can tell you all kinds of medical things that happened that recently, when someone decides they want to focus on comfort care and quality of life as their goal, that all of a sudden, all kinds of things just either consciously or unconsciously um, seem to fall by the wayside in a medical sense and not in a good way. Um, so, but also going back in the medical record about what's happened six months, 12 months ago that really can impact what's happening medically, number one, um, and then number two, what has that meant to that person and that family? How did those interactions go? How did that decision-making process go? These, are, these are all can be incredibly important issues. So <clears throat> I'll tell you a brief story about this that I thought about after we presented this. And uh, the details aren't as important, but this is kind of a common theme that comes up, is that a patient may decide that they don't want to do any more aggressive care. For example, they're diagnosed. But they're, and then at that point, the medical system may say, OK, fine, we're going to send you to hospice. But there can be so many unresolved issues that do not take place based on that decision making. In other words, if there wasn't a tissue biopsy, then what does that mean over time? What is that, how does that lead to a sense of unresolution or lack of resolution for the patient and families? Um, I can tell you of a, a situation that happened where the patient was very clear in wanting comfort care, but the more we got into her history, it turned out she had all of these family members that had tragic cancer stories ongoing at the time, young cancer diagnoses and so forth. And how, as we got to know things, she realized that she wanted comfort care, but she wanted more 
analysis of her problem because she realized it had deep involvement in her legacy because she had you know, genetic issues going on in her family and that further information about her diagnosis would help her family members. So there's all kinds of things that can matter that are not apparent at, at the beginning. This is, uh, you know, I think what in the Jennifer Altman lecture Mark called, Mark called leaving no stone unturned. Um, but I actually heard a patient of Mark say, oh yeah, I get it, assume nothing. And I thought that was, that was the, the, the term that resonated to me. And that is that, you know, so much of medical care, because the care is fragmented, it's siloed, you have all kinds of specialists, and oftentimes there's so many different things happening at the same time. And what I mean is there's a medical course, but there's a psychosocial course, a spiritual course. And when all of those things are happening at the same time, it's so easy for things to just lose their clarity. Um, and that going back and asking questions can be very, very helpful. And this is also true, I would say, is that how a patient, or I should say how someone, a person, perceives what has happened is so important and how that can be so different than how it's portrayed in the medical record. It's just amazing, the discrepancies. Uh, you know, I mean, there's more than one truth happening at the same time. So the next one is find the expert. And that is, in, in um, patient advocacy, I think that often means finding, you know, one type of practitioner, whether that's an integrative practitioner or more of a conventional practitioner, that is, is a true expert in their field. But I can tell you in the work that I do, what finding the expert means is finding someone that is highly competent in what they do, but they understand how to weigh all of those issues that I just talked about at the same time. That the reason the patient may be coming to see you for a second opinion or that we've sent them is not necessarily because they want to have more therapy or have something. It may have to do with other issues having things resolved, having um, things explained a different way, um, all kinds of things that um, knowing one's community and knowing these practitioners can be incredibly helpful in terms of resolution and uh, what I would call narrative. I mean, I think a lot of what I've learned from being on the listening end is that so much of the work that I'm involved in is about narrative and about how one sees their story. Um, and that so many of the disruptions in that narrative are things that occur when you start asking these kind of questions. Uh, the process of discovery. And um, while I would say I was trained in this idea of not making assumptions about patients and getting to know them, I would say very much, as someone in our group said, is that when you're functioning uh, in an electronic medical record world, is that getting to know someone is often checkbox. Right. What's your psychosocial history? Are you married? Are you not married? Did you smoke? I mean, you know, all these kind of things, as if that paints a picture. And uh, one of my favorite ways that I heard, you might say, the antidote to this idea uh, was uh, Brother David. And he said, you know, it's impossible to really know anyone all the way. Right? How can you possibly know someone's story? And the part that I would add uh, in what I've observed is that not only is it impossible to know someone's story, but is that through the process, one is learning their own story, right? So it's not just a static issue. We're all, all of us, whether you're on the so-called practitioner side or clinician side or the patient or family member side, it's an ongoing process the entire time. It's amazing to me what comes up um, as this work is done <coughs> with patients. Um, I can tell you just as a, as a side note is that one amazing research finding I found was that so there were all, these, all of these World War II veterans. Right now, we're right now at the peak. I think last year was the peak of World War II veterans dying. Um, and 
they, somebody did some really fascinating research with the VA, and what they found is that because PTSD was not part of, you know, not a part of the culture or any of these things, that that was never really recognized, right? So, and what they found is that when veterans would retire, the PTSD would come because they had time to sit around and think about what had happened 30, 40 years ago. And it's an amazing experience to, to sit with some of these people and hear what comes out, you know. Um, you know, getting across the cliffs at Normandy and, and killing a German shoulder and how that is coming back as grief now. You know, just all of these amazing things. And in my work, what that means is never making assumptions about what is coming towards me as a symptom or a story or whatever is complete. It can be so many things at the same time. Physical, what seems like physical pain can be spiritual pain uh, and so forth. Uh, the power of the telephone. And this is definitely something I learned from my time in San Francisco is that when I was uh, doing hospice in the Midwest, um, I used to do home visits all the time. And then when I worked in the hospital, of course, it was all in person. And my working assumption would say is that you have to see someone in person to do this work. And I was amazed at listening to Mark talk to patients, the type of intimacy that was achieved in talking on the phone with someone. And in the, in the situation that I'm in now, um, the phone is my best friend in many respects, is that I've been amazed at how many more times I can reach out to people and talk to them and talk to a family member across the country and then call the person in town and all of these things and how powerful that can be as a way of bringing together that narrative um, in families and patients. So I didn't know that I would be presenting today, so I want to be clear, I wouldn't have not put one of our marketing materials in this presentation. <laughs> Mark, about an hour ago, Mark said, hey, Will, you know, I got a surprise for you. You're gonna, you're, we need you to present today. And, uh, and then about 60 seconds later, he says, oh, and by the way, you're going to be first. <laughs> so, so this would not have been in there if I would have known that. But, but it's a great slide for the concept. And that is, I, and I'll tell you, this was complete um, dumb luck on my part, you might say, is that even though these patient advocacy ideas had been in my head and I'd been trying to work through them, is that um, I uh, was very blessed to uh, become a medical director at a hospice in Portland who was already doing this work. And so you might say it was that I had these ideas and here it was one day I woke up and I just realized, oh my gosh, this is it, they're doing it. And so about 10 years ago, this program had made a commitment to do things what I would say is the right way to do this work. Um, and I'll just point out some of these things. But one of the starting points is that uh, in hospices in particular, and I'm sure there are exceptions, I just don't know them, um, but in the hospice where um, I work, and actually where I worked in the, in the Midwest, is we manage about 80% of our patients ourselves. So if you were gonna come into our hospice, you would be managed by me, or my partner and me. And we, we, we do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so it's always one of us. And that is an incredibly powerful thing um, in terms of just how it can expedite care and facilitate care in a team-based team approach to patients and families that have serious needs. And so we have a very high medical director to patient ratio in our program because it takes a lot of time to do it that way. Um, second of all, we keep everything in-house. So our durable medical equipment is right in, down the street, down the, the hall from me in my office. Obviously, our hospice is there, and then our pharmacy, which is from our hospital, is down the street, so to speak. So what that means is, is that we try to control as many parts of the process as possible. So our pharmacists 
acquire meds, compound meds, do everything you know, as much as they can to support us in the way we want it so we're not dealing with third-party pharmacies, which can make a huge difference um, in the type of meds um, and the response time of meds. Certainly with durable medical equipment, this is something that I've seen both done very poorly in, a, in an institution where I worked and where I work now. Is It's amazing about the type of equipment that is brought to a house, how fast it's gotten there can make a huge difference in someone. If you don't meet these needs, you're never going to, you know, I was saying in the conference, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you don't meet these needs, you're not going to do the higher work or it's going to be that much more difficult. Um, and then finally, and unfortunately with this slide, I don't have a picture of her, but we have, um, they, I should say, my, my program, um, hired a full-time geriatric board-certified physical therapist that only works with hospice patients. And she rides a motorcycle to her visits. <laughs> and I can tell you that it is a radical transformative experience, as I've heard so many times from patients, to be sitting there looking out your picture window, and all of a sudden, this physical therapist shows up in a leather jacket on a big cruiser motorcycle. <laughs> It's, it's a radical thing. And she's really taught, I think, me how to think about physical therapy in a different way. And I think it's an important lesson, not just about physical therapy, but there's, a, there's different ways to think about all this work, I think. And so these are some things that um, I'll just say, I didn't put numbers next to them, um, but I guess since this is, I think, probably being recorded, I'm stuck either way. But I'll say them anyway, is that these are some things that we ran some numbers when I first some point since I've been work, working in this program, after I got past the shock that they were really doing the work this way and how fantastic it was, we started running some numbers because I realized that when you're doing things a different way, it's really great to have data to show and kind of build a moat around yourself and the type of work that you're doing. So our general inpatient rate, and, and in hospice, general inpatient means almost everyone wants to be in the community, right? No one wants to be in the hospital when they're very, very sick. They want to be in their home, in some type of facility that may be very much a home for them, um, is that the national average uh, from the last time we could find was just under 3%. And it doesn't really, the math isn't that important. But I can tell you is that when I first came, when I heard this number, I honestly thought they were lying to me. But in this model of care, the inpatient rate is about 20 times less than the national average. Um, that is an amazing number in the sense that it means that so infrequently there are out-of-control symptoms or caregiver breakdown at home where, as you can imagine, that can be a very, very terrible traumatic experience, not just for the patient, but for the legacy of that patient within a family. Uh, our medication costs uh, are about, as best as I can tell, about half the national average. Um, and I can tell you that we use, we don't use a formulary, we use kind of whatever we want to use. Um, and that also is, uh, offers a great deal of flexibility, I would say, in managing symptoms and, and outcomes better. Um, the staff turnover, the last time I saw the staff turnover for hospice nurses, which you might say is the crux and the core of your work, was um, tw just under 25% per year. And that's an incredible burnout rate. And I can't tell you what ours is offhand, but it's very low. Um, I've never seen a, a, I think I've worked in five hospices, I've never seen a hospice nursing staff that it doesn't mean it gets stressful, but it really feels part of a team and feels supported in what they do. Um, terminal agitation, um, I think, is considered kind of part and parcel of hospice. The people at the end are, are going, very often, going to become very agitated as they approach death. And I can tell you, looking at the research, this is something that was never made sense to me, is that when you would look at studies of how often terminal agitation occurred at the end of life, you'd see these incredible ranges, like 20 to 90%, something like that. And they say, how can... 
How can that be? And I don't have a number for this because it's not something we track, but I can say that my partner said that when, and this is something that I had worked on previously, um, that when I came and we instituted some changes, the terminal agitation rate went down 90%. I can say that when I worked at an inpatient hospice um, before my time, they had a 10% discharge rate from the inpatient unit, and when a different physician came, it went up to 70%. So there's tremendous, tremendous differences that can happen in terms of recognizing what's going on as patients become sick very sick about whether those things are reversible or not. And finally, the discharge rate. And I don't know offhand what the discharge rate in hospices around the country. I think it's around 10%, but, I, I, but I'm not sure. But I can tell you that in our hospice, the discharge rate is just under 25%. Um, uh, we really aggressively manage patients that come in medically. Um, just like I think the physical therapy represents that. Um, but in every part of their care, I hope that we really work on that and that a lot of patients, uh, especially with uh, chronic non-cancer illnesses, get better. Um, so I think that's just more of, here's more marketing in case you're gonna live in Portland. <laughs> um, and, and I would just add that I think that, I'll just fill this up is that another part of the work that's happening right now is just that, how do we bring this model further upstream into palliative care? And, and that's, that's kind of what I'm involved in. But. Will, thank you. And as, uh, as you can see, this Will wasn't on the original schedule. Michael Lerner last night was sort of really pleading with me to sort of expand a little bit what we present to you. And so we've sort of wedged Will in here, and we're going to get, I hope, caught up with our schedule. But I just want to point out how radical what you just heard was, that normally this, what was thought to be just sort of biological in the last hours of life, that people become so agitated and delirious and they, all, they get medicated with Haldol and morphine and everything else. What he's saying is that they reduced the rate of that by 90%. <clears throat> and he also said 25% of the patients improve so much under this kind of comprehensive care. 25% get well enough to go off hospice. That's mind-blowing. <laughs> I just want to underscore that. Um, Dwight McGee is a, is a true rock star in this field, and um, and uh, he's got a you know, medical oncology background, board certified, everything else. But somewhere along the way, he began to learn fifty million other things. And last night, I just wished all of you could have sat because uh, Dwight and Keith Block held forth for a couple of hours, and as I said afterwards, I said, you know, it's, it was literally like having Eric Clapton and Prince play, playing together. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Well, it's, it's, it's been a real privilege for me to be invited to this conference, and until I got the invitation, I had never thought that I had anything like a clinical or a patient advocacy practice. And then as I reflected on it, I, th I thought, well, I, I guess I kind of do. Um, <clears throat> I didn't set out to create one. Um, it's, it's been really, uh, really um, heart-filling, um, 
um, mind-expanding, um, compassion-expanding <clears throat> experience for me. And what I, what I would wish for the world, for humanity, is that <clears throat> all of us who, who, um, who are or will confront cancer personally or in our families <clears throat> would have the opportunity to have the care of <clears throat> someone like Keith Block or Mark Renniker or uh, Michael McCullough or Brian Bouch or um, Gwen Stritter or Mark Renniker or Raymond Chang or myself. And when the magic works, it's absolutely wonderful. And when the magic doesn't work, that they would go on to have the care of a Will Kennedy in hospice because that would truly be a healing experience through and an enriching experience throughout the entire process from, um, from diagnosis to graduation to wherever it is we go after this phase of life. <clears throat> so um, with, with that said, what I wanted to do is just give you a flavor of the role that natural compounds can play in, um, in cancer therapy and a, a way that I think about them and principles that I use in constructing a, um, a botanical nutritional support program um, to go along with cancer therapy. And uh, this is very similar to the way all of the people that I mentioned um, also do it, although this is more of an art than a science and everybody paints in a different style. Um, but the principles are quite similar. Um, so the goals of this are to reduce side effects, to enhance the efficacy of chemotherapy, radiation, or hormonal therapy, and I should add to um, enhance the curability of surgery when it's been delivered with curative intent, to target mechanisms of multidrug resistance and radiation resistance, and to alter the terrain of the patient to be non-supportive of tumor cells. And that final one is probably the most important one in the long term, and it is absolutely a collaborative effort between the patient their family and social support network, their caregivers, and their, uh, their physician or, or um, caregiver, care director. It is made up of what you eat, supplements that you take, exercise that you do, thoughts that you have, feelings that you have, the environment that you live in. All of these things impact the terrain profoundly mediated by mechanisms that science is, is still uncovering. We call it epigenetics. Uh, your genes are not your destiny. We, we change the expression of our genes every day by what we eat, by what we think, by what we feel, by how we move. So in this, this process of developing an integrative protocol and monitoring patients, um, we want to consider multiple processes utilized by that's a nice word for cancer cells, um, <clears throat> neoplastic cells, to support their proliferation, their progression, and their resistance to treatment. 
and uh, these are processes that are exploited by cancer. Uh, signal transduction is the way they communicate from the cell membrane to the, to the nucleus of the cell and with each other. Um, altered gene expression and stability, the upregulated inflammatory response. Cancer loves inflammation. And chronic inflammation will produce cancer in a, in a large proportion of cases. Evasion of apoptosis. Apoptosis is the process that cells naturally should go through when they are damaged beyond repair or when they've reached the end of their lifetime. They're recycled and their parts are reused. It's a very ecological mechanism that goes on. And cancer cells sh are cells that should have undergone apoptosis but didn't. Um, for various reasons. And then evasion of the immune system and suppression of the immune system. Uh, Dedifferentiation is how cells become more primitive, more embryonic. The most aggressive cancer cells are the ones that are the least differentiated, the ones that are mo most like um, the cells that we came from. <clears throat> Some cancers, prostate and, and, and breast uh, particularly, are hormonally dependent, although you can find hormonal dependency in many other types of cancers, although it's often not looked for. Um, invasion and metastasis, that's what makes cancer deadly. Uh, if it stayed in one place, it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, <clears throat> radiation and chemo chemotherapy resistance. Uh, loss of stromal integrity, that's the capsule the, around a tumor that breaks down, which allows it access into lymphatic vessels and blood vessels and the ability to metastasize. And then uh, new blood vessel growth, that's Greek for new blood vessel growth, uh, which <coughs> cancers need to do in order to get larger. To get bigger than the head of a pin, a, a tumor colony has to develop its own blood supply. And that's something that we can also develop strategies to interfere with, particularly if we've reduced all of the cancer in the body to sizes uh, of the size of a head of a pin or smaller. <clears throat> um, I, I did this talk for, for uh, an audience of physicians in Australia last June, and so there's a lot of technical stuff that I'm going to um, not present. I really only wanted to use uh, about a dozen slides. Um, and so this was expounding on each one of those things. So to develop a comprehensive protocol, we want to select agents that target each of the processes that I just um, ran through, and we want to aim for a synergistic combination. Um, not, so these are the, the things that we want to start with. And I can't emphasize enough general well-being. The best prognostic sign that I have found, it doesn't matter what the blood works looks like, it doesn't matter what the scans look like, the best prognostic sign is how people feel when therapy's over. I've got stage four cancer patients that have tumors, and they say, I feel better than I ever felt in my life. I know that patient is going to do well for a long time, even with those tumors uh, present. So we want to promote gene stability. Cancers are very genetically unstable. That's why they're very hard to treat, because you treat with chemotherapy, you kill some of the cells, the surviving cells have changed their genes so that they resist that chemotherapy, or they resist that immune therapy. Uh, we want to control inflammation, provide immune support, 
um, slow down the growth. That's Greek for slow down the growth, induce cytostasis. Re induce redifferentiation, make the cells less primitive, more like the cells that they came from. Um, we want to encourage apoptosis. <clears throat> we want to modulate hormones if they're relevant to the, to the growth of that tumor. We want to inhibit invasion and metastasis, and we want to support anti-angiogenesis, preventing the growth of new blood vessels. Um, so, <clears throat> the foundation. Um, address self-nourishment and self-care. So this is self-advocacy. And when people are unable to do that, they need a caregiver that can uh, advocate for them to get them um, <clears throat> good self-nourishment and self-care. And this is nowhere more important than when they're in the hospital. Because unless you're in a plain tree hospital, uh, the odds are that the nourishment you're going to be getting is not the best. But most hospitals will let um, friends and family bring in food for the patient. And that's a very valuable thing to do. Um, breathing, breath moves the lymphatic system. The diaphragm is the major pump of the lymphatic system. It oxygenates us. Cancer thrives in a low oxygen environment. Water intake. So <clears throat> laughter, emotional outlets are incredibly important. Penny Block is going to give a, a, a nice talk on psycho-oncology, and it's absolutely fundamental to healing. If a person is under stress and in an unhappy uh, social uh, situation uh, and sees no way out of it, I don't care what their nutrition is. I don't. They can have pristine nutrition and exercise every day and have the best possible integrative oncology. They're swimming upstream because they're not happy. And happiness is a, a really important thing. And releasing fear. Um, and you know, Jerry Jampolsky wrote a, a great book a long time ago, Love is Letting Go of Fear. Love is the antidote to fear. And that's the common theme that everybody in this conference has, is that they bring love to their patients. <clears throat> Relaxation, sleep is really key. You really can't get well without good quality sleep. Play, creativity, the cancer health program at Commonweal uh, is the, the uh, model for a whole lot of these issues. And it's the first time that many people experience it is in um, the, the, uh, these cancer health programs and the Smith Farm program, which is the East Coast version of this. Um, exercise, movement, social support, spiritual support, uh, pursuits, and address areas of poor organ function. So in your foundation, you, you, if you've got a, an inflamed liver, if you've got uh, an inflamed kidney, you really want to focus on helping these major organs. You have a heart that's, that's having trouble pumping blood. You really want to get the nutrients. You want to unblock the, the neurological flow. Uh, you want to do everything you can to optimize organ function um, if you, uh, to, to, to stack the deck in favor of um, the patient having the chance to get well. <clears throat> um, I'm going to flip through the functional medicine stuff. Um, so uh, I wanted to mention adaptogens. Adaptogenic plants, this is a term that was coined by a Russian scientist in the 1960s, are plants that have compounds in them that the plant makes for itself to help it resist stress in its environment. Typically these plants grow in stressful environments like Siberia. 
And if you grew that same plant in a greenhouse with fertilizer and you know perfect conditions, it wouldn't have the compounds that we want to help us manage physical stress or emotional stress or psychological stress. Um, all of these plants have the capability of, of, of doing this. Um, and it's probably because the plant itself has learned to survive in, in a stressful environment. The animals that eat them, including us, uh, can also use those same properties. So adaptogen, uh, adaptogenic plants are incredibly useful to this foundational um, helping the person to, uh, to, to handle the stress of being ill. There's no more stressful event in, you know, we've all seen the life scale uh, 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 stress things where, you know, death of a spouse and, and moving and so forth. They've never put diagnosis of cancer in there, uh, and, but it's way up there. <laughs> The, uh, the, the, the suicide rate spikes tremendously in the week after diagnosis of cancer. Um, is, and, and, and cancer is what I call a psychological emergency uh, in, in the patient and in the, the healthcare system. It's not a real emergency because we know from cancer biology that those cells have been growing for five to ten years. It's just we found out about them today when we got the biopsy back. Now it's, oh my God, we got to get it out there right away. And I counsel patients, slow down. You know, look at your options. Educate yourself. It doesn't matter if we take this out. In a, you're better off if we take this out in a month. If it's breast cancer, we want to take this out in the early part of your of, of your second half of your menstrual cycle if you're, if you're premenopausal. There's all of these things that, that need to be looked at. So the first thing is to just slow down and not get swept away in the psychological emergency of a cancer diagnosis. Um, so this is, am I going the right way? Okay, NF-kappa-B or beta, NF, nuclear factor kappa beta, uh, Greek letters to stand for Greek words, um, <clears throat> is, the, is the key player in a lot of the aspects of things that drive cancer. And uh, you can see inflammation, uh, uh, it promotes immortality of, of cancer cells, reduces their... their uh, ability to undergo uh, apoptosis, drives proliferation, metastasis, all of those things. Um, <clears throat> these are all things that downregulate, that calm down and reduce this NF-kappa-B, this linchpin in all of these processes. And a lot of them are in your, your, your cupboard at home. Basil, cinnamon, cardamom, clove, ginger, um, that's why when I visit Starbucks, I get a chai. Uh, <laughs> and um, one of, a, a saying that I made up is a, is a curry a day keeps the oncologist away. Um, <clears throat> this, the spices are, uh, they were the original food preservatives. And they also preserve us. Uh, just like the stress compounds in adaptogens 
help us manage stress better. Green tea, luteolin, which is in many plants, but it, it's well represented in artichoke leaf. Um, parthenolide from feverfew, quercetin, resveratrol uh, from the grape skin and, and uh, red wine and the Japanese knotweed plant. Um, VEGF stands for vascular endothelial growth factor. It is a, one of the things that drives blood vessel growth for tumors. And we have a very expensive monoclonal antibody called Avastin, which is basically a sponge for this stuff. Um, all of these are natural compounds that downregulate VEGF. Being overweight causes leptin resistance, and leptin drives VEGF. So um, that's one of the things that I always look at in, in, in measuring terrain is, is a fasting leptin level. And we can also measure the VEGF level. <clears throat> this is uh, the epidermal growth factor receptor. It's a driver in a, a lot of different kinds of cancers, particularly head and neck lung cancer. Sometimes there's a mutation in this receptor. And when there's a mutation in it, uh, those cells are very sensitive to the pharmaceutical inhibitors of this. Uh, but these are all natural compounds that also downregulate it. Um, P53 is the, a, a protein and a gene. Uh, it's both things, the gene that makes the protein, that's called the guardian of the genome. It's what tells the cell to slow down. Oh, okay, don't, let's, let, let's not divide, let's not get in a hurry. We need to do a little repair work here. Um, <clears throat> so these are all things that support the, uh, the function of P53. P53 is mutated in about half of, roughly half of cancers, and they are more resistant to uh, a lot of different kinds of chemotherapy. Um, and it's possible to that process I referred to epigenetics to get them to uh, repair and start to express normal P53. HER2-new is, is most well known in breast cancer. Uh, it used to be a very bad thing uh, for women that had HER2-new overexpressing breast cancer. These were very deadly breast cancers until the advent of Herceptin, a monoclonal antibody that binds it, which made them uh, one of the better uh, forms of breast cancer to have. And these are all natural compounds, natural products that enhance the effectiveness of Herceptin uh, in controlling this type of breast cancer. Uh, doing something wrong. Uh, controlling information, okay. So this is just, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to speed up here. Um, just to, 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 to give you a flavor, there's a portfolio of natural compounds that um, have small but cumulative effects on all of these things. I, I like to use the analogy of uh, Gulliver and the Lilliputians. They, you know, they tied this giant down with all these tiny little strands. That's the way I see natural compounds, botanical compounds. The difference between um, plants and drugs is that plants are smart and drugs are dumb. Uh, so plant compounds 
they'll, they'll do many, many things. Curcumin has well over two dozen targets. Um, I think it's over three dozen targets. And there's hundreds of compounds in each plant, and they all affect dozens of targets. And so you put lots and lots of plants together, um, you can really create uh, a terrain, a milieu, that throws a wrench into the, uh, into the workings of uh, cancer cells, makes them more vulnerable to conventional treatments. So, um, immune support, another portfolio. You'll find the same things in lots of these, because there's a lot of overlap. Um, plant compounds are multitaskers. They work in many different areas. Okay, so to, to slow down the proliferation of cancer cells, um, regulating your blood sugar is incredibly important, especially if you have, if you ever get, if a cancer patient gets a PET scan, the PET scan is based on how avidly the tumors take up glucose. And they have something on them called an SUV, standard uptake value. The higher that value is, the more that is a sugar-loving cancer. Um, and we know that diabetics are more prone to uh, cancer of many different types. Uh, adult onset diabetes is also caused by uh, being overweight. And so reducing weight, reducing blood sugar, um, we often use the, the diabetes medicine metformin now in cancer, has a lot of anti-cancer activities. And in fact, diabetics who are on metformin have a lower rate of cancer than normal people who are non-diabetic, um, which tells you something. Um, <clears throat> green tea. You see green tea keep coming up. I, I, I also drink a lot of green tea. Um, selenium, boswellia from Indian frankincense, vitamin D. Um, there's a, probably everybody knows, there's a, an epidemic of vitamin D deficiency that started with the Industrial Revolution and everybody moving their work indoors. Uh, but we only discovered about oh, 10, 15 years ago that when we're out in the sun for an hour, enough to get just a little bit pink, we make 10 to 20,000 units of vitamin D. Nobody had any clue. We were using 400 units of vitamin D because that's what's in a teaspoon of cod liver oil and that's what prevents rickets in a baby. But what prevents rickets in a baby is not the optimal dose for an adult uh, human uh, with health challenges. So optimizing vitamin D is important to a whole lot of things. Modulating hormones, we'll go into the testing. Aromatase inhibitors, you've probably heard of these, uh, a very widely used um, drugs. And when I, when, when I uh, consult for women who uh, either can't handle the side effects of aromatase inhibitors, they just cause too much pain, even, even on a dose-reduced protocol, I'll use a lot of these compounds. Chrysin, uh, which is, comes from uh, a lot of different plants, but uh, is uh, concentrated from marigold flowers commercially, uh, is, a, in some people, a, a potent enough aromatase inhibitor that I've seen women get the same side effects that they get from pharmaceutical aromatase inhibitors by taking a couple grams of chrysin. Supporting anti-angiogenesis, um, copper is, a, is an area of investigation that, that I've been particularly interested in. 
I found that in, in people with cancer, if we can get them into uh, what we call a complete remission, um, which means that we can't see any tumors on scans, tumor markers are normal, that tells us that residual cancer cells are at the microscopic level. If we deprive them of copper for a period of a few years, uh, they, it seems to put those cancer cells, those residual cancer cells, into a dormant state. Uh, and I found that a very, very uh, useful strategy. And these are foods that are high in copper. Organ meats and shellfish are really, uh, and to some degree, chocolate. Uh, rooibos is one that a lot of people don't know about and a lot of people um, drink. And it's, it's okay if your copper levels aren't too high. So one of the things we always monitor in terrain is copper and zinc levels and uh, ceruloplasmin. Um, tetrathiomolybdenate is the most potent copper chelating, chelating agent, uh, one that I've been using for a, a, about 10 years. It took a few years to figure out where it really works, and where it really works is in people that have no evidence of disease but are at high risk of relapse. And so these are all um, natural compounds with um, anti-angiogenic effects. Uh, there was a big study of shark liver oil, and by itself, it doesn't really impact outcomes, but it does have anti-angiogenic activity. And again, it's all those little threads tying down Gulliver little spider silks. And that's it. I know what some of you are thinking, which is, wow, uh, those were a lot of things to, f how do I bring those into what I'm doing to take care of myself or help someone? And it is uh, a thicket. That, and again, the clinical advocate role of someone like Dwight, but also any practitioner you might work with in the probably more in the integrative field, would be to figure out which of those would fit with your case, with the kind of care you might be getting, uh, and how to do this, how to put together that portfolio. Really, a, really a challenge. Um, we're not going to take the questions right now for Dwight. What we're going to do is invite Raymond Chang. Up. And one of the things that came from this conference was that uh, I, I sort of encourage people not to rely on their PowerPoint too much. And as you saw, poor Dwight, I love the way general well-being kept <laughs> trying to say, general well-being, let, let me out, let me out. Um, and so and I went to Raymond when he walked in with his uh, wife and, and pet dog who's some running around here, I hope. Um, I said, well, are you going to need your PowerPoint? And, and Ray said, no, if you can just get me, I just have to make one drawing. <laughs> so Raymond Chang from New York City. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I, I, uh, maybe just to start off, um, uh, the set, I'm supposed to talk about uh, immune therapies? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, before we get into that, I, I, I really have this strong urge to um, uh, re respond to the, the, the two previous speakers. Uh, I think a lot of what I end up doing, I think a lot of us, is what Dwight's presenting, this part, and how to help people 
deal with during the disease process. Almost, at least in my practice, almost, I say less than 1%, literally, want to talk about death and dying uh, at any point in time, even though they're obviously dying when it's, when maybe we already have a sense that what all these things and what I'm going to talk about is likely not going to work. Which highlights actually the importance, I think, of what Will talked about. We, we, in this system, we see hospice only as one stage or was a sort of a compartmentalized uh, department that, uh, you know, then, then uh, at this point, then refer to hospice or, you know, call hospice. Um, I think it's much more important. I only wish my patients breached the subject about death and dying. I don't want to breach it because it, it seems like then they think I'm giving up on them or something like that, which is, does not give a good. But I have a few rare patients who then come and we somehow touch the topic, either because they know that I'm Buddhist or, they, uh, or, or, or somehow we touched upon something that, that uh, brings upon the subject death and dying. But uh, um, life itself, uh, as we're talking, this biological life cannot be cured. So we have this impossible task of trying to, the patients look at us for a cure, okay? Although we know that it's not possible. Uh, spiritually, we can all be cured. Um, so I, it, it's actually, and the, the, there should be at least as much effort into preparing for dying and to treat for dying. Um, and I, I recall this, this uh, conversation with, with His Holiness, uh, the da Dalai Lama, and uh, somebody was asking him, are you afraid of death? Are you going to die? And he laughed in his usual warm chuckle and says, no, I practice it every day. Now, this is true. There, there are, and he does this, it's this early morning practice, it's about a 30, 40-minute practice, which he does when he's... There is this way of training for dying through meditation. You go through this uh, stages. It's almost like so. The example that I give, it's almost like scuba diving. If you're not, you've never seen the ocean. You've never died before. You've never seen the ocean. It looks very scary, and you don't have the equipment. How do you go diving? I mean, okay. But for divers, it's. Simple. <laughs> they do it frequently. They enjoy it, etc. And they go. So actually, there is this practice of almost like a near-death experience, and then coming back, and then going. And then if you keep doing it, then the journey doesn't seem so fearful, etc., uh, etc. Et but nobody asked me to talk about that, or asked to learn about that, etc., or to practice preparing for death. But I, I think, to me. I think that is actually the most important thing, uh, and because that prepares for rebirth. Okay, but anyway, so um, uh, for many of you here already know a lot about immunology and so forth. So uh, uh, I don't want to uh, uh, rehash immunology 101, uh, but I think it is confusing area, uh, even for those of us who deal with it every day, it is confusing because there are a myriad of cells involved, things which do this and that to receptors, to 
uh, and so forth. And there are many things out there. If you Google the you know, immune boosting or immune, immune therapy, cancer, you can find all myriad and vast arrays of different items. And patients get very confused. Perhaps doctors also get confused. Um, but I, I, I would like to use one simple diagram, which is effective, I think, to sort of, uh, you can place everything and you can see how everything works together and then the uh, ideal treatment program also becomes quite, I think, self-evident. And in a truly uh, Buddhist manner, this is the picture, no. <laughs> uh, this is part of the picture. So we're talking, when we're talking immune therapies, we're talking really cell therapies in the main. Uh, because we are using the immune system, mostly cells. Uh, so this is distinguished from uh, drug therapy. Uh, it is using it's it's a it's frequently immune therapies are also called biological therapies, and the agents which do this are called biologicals for a reason. But there are three interacting aspects. Uh, the main one is the one that we usually talk about. Uh, it's what gets the immune system to kill the bad guy, or the cancer cell. Okay, so this is the cancer cell. This is, simplistically, the part of the immune system that actually does the killing. How does immune boosting help fight cancer? Well, uh, it's not just to hold it down in some way, but literally, uh, there are cells in the immune system that recognize and kills cancer cells because cancer happens in all of us every day. Five, six, seven times cells will mutate and become cancers. We have an immune system. It removes the cells. We keep on functioning. Um, in New York City, uh, I give the analogy to the patients that there are terrorists in New York City probably all the time, but, you know, they're... Uh, but the, the security or the policing, etc., is uh, there enough to keep any events from happening. Uh, so this is at this uh, at the system at this level, and this is where a lot of research, uh, a lot of what we know, both alternative medicine and standard medicine, uh, drugs and botanicals and supplements, etc., are effective at this level. Okay. So you have, you can name all these things, many of the adaptogens that I mentioned, you know, for example, mushrooms that we talked about yesterday. Um, so a lot of the supplements, okay. This needs to be a reborn. <laughs> okay, so a lot of it, for example, mushrooms uh, and the things like that. Then the drugs, interleukins, to look at two, we have IL-15, IL it looks very promising also uh, right now, this interferons. So these are drugs. Um, they are, uh, you name uh, even the old uh, Coley's toxin, Coley's therapy, which is uh, induced fever, works at this level in a so-called immune stimulation. It works at the level to improve the policing, if you will. Improve the ability of. Uh, there are many things involved in this, but uh, I'm making it very simple. That will improve the ability or the effectiveness of particular arm of the immune system, particular cells, to go and kill 
the cancer cells, all right? But like a good, I like a policing system, the police may not know who they're supposed to go after, especially if it's the same system. Okay, it's easier if we are talking about this is a chicken pox, thank you. If this is something foreign because the body, the immune system can recognize a difference between self and non-self, which is one of its main functions. So it's geared towards dealing with things which are not part of you, but cancer cells are part of us. They're mutated from our own cells, and sometimes to the immune system, they look about the same. Uh, so there's no reason to go and pick out and destroy and kill one of us. Then it comes into play this particular area, which we, there, there are many things that will fall into this, but it's the same concept. This is the antigen, more medically speaking. Uh, this is the recognition part. Uh, this is classically what's called a vaccine. And it could be something like HER2 that was mentioned by Dwight, for example, it's a target. Uh, it's something, uh, for example, when we get a flu shot and you get bits of dead flu introduced to your, your body, introduced to the immune system, it's to introduce your immune system and try to teach it to go, hey, look at this. If you see this again, uh, uh, arrest, okay, or, or, or shoot. Uh, so this part is the classical vaccine or vaccinations. And there are cancer vaccines. You, there are clinical trials of vaccines, so you know, breast cancer, HER2 vaccine, there's an ongoing trial, for example. And there are many companies working on this particular aspect, just looking for a vaccine against cancer. And there are these alternative or gray area vaccines, for example. Uh, Dr. Springer's vaccine, the T-antigen vaccine against breast cancer. Um, all these things will fall into this area. Um, this is the recognition part. And so using this analogy, if this is the policing uh, arm, then this we're talking about the mugshot or the warrant. Uh, they need to know who to go after. So a lot of things when people read about it, okay, there's an immune therapy trial at the NCI and you know, there's a HER2 vaccine well, for breast cancer, you know, what, what is that? So it really is something that's into this area, something to introduce to these cells so they know what to go after. Then uh, yesterday we had some preliminary discussion on, on uh, some treatment that uh, uh, my group and my partners in, in Germany uh, that we've been uh, working on together for uh, for 10 years, 10, a little bit over 10 years, it's this particular cell called the dendritic cell. Dendritic comes from the word dendros, which is Greek for uh, tree, tree roots of a tree. So the cell actually looks like this, okay? Um, and this is a cell therapy that aims to give a lot of to put this cell into the patient. Now, normally, we all have this cell. It is not a new thing. We all have it, but in circulation, it only accounts for about a half, per, half a, it's a kind of white cell. This is a kind of white cell. So again, there's a, 
you draw pictures, it's a white cell, then there are uh, leukocytes, lymphocytes, etc. There are many, there are many kinds of lymphocytes, helper cells, suppressor cells, etc. etc. Um, but this particular white cell usually is not in great abundance. We have about half a percent of circulating white cells being dendritic cells. They serve a special function. They actually, if you imagine hands, they actually will pick up flu shot, mumps shot, tetanus, whatever, or bits of tumor. They will hand over the antigen and present it to the T cell, which then can recognize. So it's not as if you put some antigen in uh, or some recognition molecule in, and this will just automatically pick it up. And to be able for them to see this as a signal, as a warrant, the police need to see that it comes from the district attorney or the prosecutor. <laughs> so dendritic uh, uh, cell DC is also like the DA. Um, <laughs> it functions like that. Um, so the idea came that, well, maybe uh, there's a problem uh, in cancer uh, patients uh, that they don't have enough dendritic cells, and if we gave them a lot of dendritic cells, maybe that would help. Uh, and the idea is, again, using the, the ongoing analogy, you have a lot of crime in your neighborhood, in the city, etc. Uh, the problem could be a weak police department, you keep boosting them, but they don't know who to go after, so you really need to be able to identify who you're supposed to uh, deal with. Uh, so you need also recognition. But if the prosecutors are weak, or the DA office is poorly funded, poorly staffed, there are not enough of them, overworked, etc., doesn't matter if you have a lot of policemen. The job may still not be done, so the crime rate will still remain. Hi. Uh, this may be one of the problems that, because these things have been around for a long time. Immune therapies, actually it preceded chemotherapy uh, and it was overtaken uh, because uh, uh, the, the, actually in a way started with uh, Professor Coley, uh, Dr. Coley, who's a surgeon at uh, the hospital which was what Sloan Kettering formerly was, was where he worked, so uh, he found, uh, people know about Coley's toxin? Yeah, no? So very briefly, it, it's just uh, that uh, uh, William B. Coley, who's a surgeon, at that time there's no chemo, no radiation, and he noticed, he's a surgeon, he noticed that in some of his cancer patients, uh, somehow, after, if they got infected after surgery, a bad infection and high fevers, etc. That sometimes after the uh, the infection episode cleared, the tumor also uh, cleared. So he thought, well, maybe if we can artificially then create fever, um, and he used bacteria. Uh, so he, uh, in a way, just artificially infected the patient, recreated a fever, and used that as a method of treatment. But uh, then came along radiation um, as a treatment, which is more obviously effective and easier to control, et cetera. And uh, it also harks back to the Rockefeller family, and they, they decided to fund 
uh, more radiation, and uh, this was then left to the wayside. Um, there are still people doing it, not a lot. It's quite clumsy as a treatment. I have patients doing it. There's a hospital in China devoted to coli's treatments um, that I've heard about. Uh, so it's not totally dead. Um, and uh, the, uh, you know, um, uh, but, and the idea of, you know, hypothermia has something to do with it. It's, it's partly the fever activates the immune system, et cetera, et cetera. But this is the very early immune treatment, uh, primitive in a way, but it was effective. The problem with all these things, we have many things that stimulate the immune system. Well, we should have seen many cures. If it is as simple as T cells killing cancer cells, if we can stimulate enough of this, we should be able to do that. And this is to the extent that there are so there, there, there are very serious studies done with uh, actually harvesting these killer cells, expanding them outside of a patient's body, so-called uh, vivo, uh, in the laboratory, and then just infusing patients with these cells. It could, you know, you've heard about some of these natural killer cells. Okay, there are also gamma delta T cells. There, there, there are various parts of this, these uh, cells that actually kill the cancer cells. And uh, we've done that. Uh, we've sent patients uh, uh, for treatment to um, uh, um, arrange family members to donate and harvest NK cells, expand it in the laboratory, reinfuse the patients. Sometimes you see a result, but again, with the whole in this whole area, the results are not so astounding. Uh, that uh, so something is missing. <coughs> Could it be this part that's missing? Um, in the laboratory, we call it priming. I mean, how to teach you know how to teach the cells to go after a certain target. Um, but it could be then we thought maybe the, the the prosecutor's office is weak. Could be the issue. So then uh, came along uh, dendritic cells um, and. Um, um, we've been using it in collaboration for legal reasons. It's not done, uh, it's done more and more in trials. There are many trials going on. Um, and actually you can look at dendritic.info. It lists all current clinical trials, fairly up to date until, I think until January this year, uh, if you're interested in dendritic cell trials. And a lot of trials, there are at least five, six companies working on it right now. Uh, and uh, the the... Uh, uh, the one <coughs> uh, called Dendrion uh, that makes uh, one uh, for prostate cancer, dendritic cell therapy for prostate cancer, they make, it's called Provenge, and it was FDA approved uh, and, uh, and uh, reimbursable by my Medicare, and et cetera. So uh, that just, all that happened within the past two years. Uh, we started, as I said, about 10 years ago, and actually most of my colleagues have never heard of this cell. What is a dendritic cell? What kind? Of... So it fell into this category of really alternative, uh, so uh, gray area, you know, maybe offshore clinic. Uh, it, it didn't. It, a lot of my colleagues would look at it as something really a little iffy. Uh, they they think this is not. You know, they never heard of it. They say, "Well, what is this?" But now uh, that uh, the dendritic cell uh, discovery got the Nobel Prize for Medicine uh, 2011, 
awarded to Dr. Steinman uh, in New York uh, with Rockefeller University. He discovered the cell. Um, <clears throat> and since the Nobel Prize was awarded, uh, no, we got no more challenges. It's very simple to explain that this received the Nobel Prize. There's a story, I mean, some of you may know this, is a very touching story. Professor Steinman himself had pancreas cancer. Uh, he was treated uh, by one of uh, my colleagues, Eileen O'Reilly, at Sloan Kettering. He did not do chemotherapy. Um, he did his own cell therapy. He survived for four years. He succumbed. He succumbed three days before the Nobel was announced. And he didn't know about it. Uh, they couldn't reach him. Uh, the Nobel Committee was not aware that he passed away because otherwise they wouldn't give it to him. The Nobel is never awarded posthumously. It's always to somebody who's alive. So they had to have a special meeting, say, what do we do? Do we retract it? He passed away. It's, it's against our books. I mean, we don't do this. Uh, but finally, they still decided, you know, it, it, because he didn't, I mean, they didn't know he died. <laughs> and he didn't know he, he got it. Uh, so... Uh, and in talking to the Sloan Kettering people, they still say that uh, it was, that they still don't believe that uh, his good survival was due to his own treat, uh, his treatment. Uh, they, they believe that they gave him good care. So, but anyway, so, um, so that's a little uh, story about that. Uh, the system, the way it works, and those who were here yesterday, we talked about it a little bit. The way it works in this country, if you want to get this and you don't exactly have the right indication, which is end-stage prostate, uh, you have to look for a trial. When you don't fit any trials, it's a problem. Okay, so uh, for people who don't fit any trials, I mean, we refer them. We first give patients a chance to look at trials to see if they want to do a trial, if they fit a trial, et cetera, et cetera. If they don't fit and they want to do it uh, so-called privately or outside of this, then they have to go out of the country. Um, and, uh, you know, there are other clinics doing this. And Dr. Moviglia was mentioned uh, in, in uh, Argentina, does very good work. Uh, and uh, there are others who claim to be doing it, uh, Mexico, et cetera. I don't know exactly. It's it really it's the same thing. Uh, uh, my uh, uh, German partners uh, have been doing it for uh, over the 10 years and uh, they have treated together maybe uh, 4,000 patients by now. We present annually uh, this year, not this past year, but uh, we've been presenting annually at, at ASCO uh, um, on the work. Uh, but um, it is not the perfect answer. The results, people ask, what's, so what's the result? The result is not dramatic. There are cases that are dramatic, uh, certainly. But overall, I would say, conservatively, 25 to 30% complete remission for late-stage patients. We don't advocate people going uh, at, at the end, because you can understand if somebody has been heavily pretreated already with chemotherapy, this part doesn't work well. They have a battered police department. So it doesn't matter how many prosecutors you put in. There's nobody to carry out the arresting. 
uh, it's a problem. Uh, so the results are then limited. But the best way to do this is not to think of this and do this kind of thing in a step-by-step -step manner, which is one issue I have with trials. Trials usually test a thing at a time. A company that makes a dendritic treatment wants the patient to do nothing but their dendritic treatment to see how effective it is so that they can get an FDA approval and they can charge for it. Uh, is it the best way to do it? No, the best way to do it is to have all parts. As you can see, it's very obvious, self-evident. Uh, so you need to support the immune system, at the same time introduce more dendritic cells, and this is, can be taken care of in the lab, and also it can be taken care of by vaccinating a patient with antigens. Uh, we talked about that yesterday a little bit. These are technicalities, I mean, for, but I really try to boil everything down, um, and uh, the, the advocacy aspect uh, for us practicing in the States, we provide this using some of the things that Dwight mentioned. We use some drugs. Uh, there are patients doing this on their own. We advise them. Um, uh, this is available from Canada uh, um, and also Mexico, as far as I know, um, to US patients. This part, uh, we used to, when Dr. Springer was alive, we did some we, we treated some of his patients, so we got the vaccine from Chicago. I don't know if you know the story about Dr. Springer and Springer's vaccine, uh, et cetera, but uh, we also arrange material to be sent from the biopsy to Germany, they extract it. Uh, there are many ways to, to, to try to, to get this part in. Uh, and then this part, the patients would go uh, initially to Germany and then the German doctors will then bring the vaccine to New York uh, and uh, monthly they visit and they consult uh, with patients as well as treat. Uh, and this is under uh, FDA exemption, uh, compassionate use, or under New York State uh, practice of medicine, that this is not considered a drug, which is a gray area, which we mentioned yesterday. Texas is the only state that formally uh, passed that that cell treatment should really be considered practice of medicine. But that's a whole different topic uh, uh, that has to do with legality and so forth. Um, so that, that, I think that sort of sums up immune therapy <laughs> as, <laughs> as much as I can uh, uh, 